everybody to Equals. I'm Max. Welcome everybody, this is Nabil. We're thrilled to bring you today an interview between Winnie and Professor Joseph Stiglitz, one of the world's foremost thinkers on inequality. So when did you first come across Joseph Stiglitz then, Nabil? Right, Max, I've got to tell you, and this might feel a little bit like a confession, it's about 2008, and I've just finished the last chapter of a book by Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, who's... So you read a lot of his work then? I did. Max, I think it's important to be able to read and understand perspectives of from all sides, and he is... Right, yeah, OK. So I'd, I'd finished, and I was attracted to his ideas about freedom, especially, you can say, as a, you know, as a capitalist business student, but it was... Upon Shocking. reading Professor Joseph Stiglitz, that I really had my mind open to, I think, the defining feature of our global economy, which is its extreme inequality. And this was someone with intellectual heft who was able to deconstruct many of others' arguments and show another way. Yeah, I mean, he really is one of the godfathers of inequality studies. I mean, for me, I came to, to Joe Stiglitz as an old man, I remember the huge protests in 2001, 2002, hundreds of thousands of people protesting against globalisation. And Joe Stiglitz, he stormed out of the World Bank in protest against the way the IMF and the World Bank were treating developing countries. And he was a real hero. His book, Globalisation and Its Discontents, was a bible for us back then. And he's continued to be a real guru in this area. Agurun, can I also say, Max, you know, I'm witness to how he's also not just a Nobel laureate thinker and so on, but also someone who's able to combine that with his activism. A couple of years ago, I was in New York with Winnie and we were part of a report that really took on the big pharmaceutical companies for using patents to drive up prices to medicines, which really is killing people, right? It is, it is killing people. and and, and, And a couple of governments in that arena, they stood up to try to slam the report. And it was, a, it was an interesting moment because out of nowhere, Professor Stiglitz stood up, line by line, deconstructed their arguments. And it was a really powerful show of this Nobel laureate activist economist taking on corporate power. That is an amazing story. He is an amazing man. And, and let's listen to the interview. <laughs> First, Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Let's start here. What, in your view, is the scale of economic inequality in the world today? What are the trends? And how does it compare with previous periods in history? Well, inequality uh, has grown enormously, uh, particularly since uh, the beginning uh, around 1980, about 40, 40, 45 years ago. Uh, Before that, there was a trend uh, within most countries, uh, most advanced countries, of a decline in inequality. There was actually an economic law called Kuznick's Law. Uh, Kuznick's got, Simon Kuznick's got a Nobel Prize for his work, uh, which argued that in uh, early stages of development, Inequality grows. Uh, there are some people who are able to take advantage of the new opportunities uh, and their incomes grow faster than the rest. But then in the second stage, inequality decreases as those who were behind catch up. Uh, and that was uh, the pattern when Kuznick's wrote in the 1950s. Uh, no one then could have anticipated what began to happen uh, in the era of uh, Thatcher and Reagan, 
uh, where inequality started to grow and grow and grow. Uh, the one good aspect of global uh, inequality is that uh, there has been a growth in uh, a number of emerging markets, uh, particularly the largest emerging markets, uh, uh, China, India, uh, and they've closed the gap, reduced the gap between the advanced countries and themselves. I remember those days of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. I was a student at university in the UK, and the change was quite sudden because the, the narrative shifted and um, people were, they were called yuppies and they, it was suddenly very fashionable to be greedy, really, to maximize for yourself, to, to advance yourself at the cost of other people. There was like a new way of thinking that has now grown and grown until now it's unchallenged. What do you think? Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. This was the era in the United States. Uh, there was a, a, a famous movie with a character called Gordon Greco who talked about greed is good. Uh, in terms of politics, uh, Reagan uh, said that uh, deregulate, uh, cut tax rates on the rich, uh, and the economy will grow so much that those in the middle, those at the bottom will be better off than they otherwise would have been. So the view was, yes, the economic pie will be more inequitably shared, but the pie will be so much bigger mm -hmm. that no one can complain. It was an idea called trickle-down economics. Well, it didn't work out that way. Uh, we've had now more than four decades of what might be called this uh, an economic experiment, uh, and that experiment has failed. Growth is actually significantly slower than it was in the decades after World War II. Increase in inequality, that was delivered. And what that has meant that in uh, uh, most advanced countries and many middle-income countries, uh, the growth of inequality is so large that uh, those at the bottom uh, even those in the middle are not doing very well. Uh, uh, their incomes have stagnated. Those with, uh, without uh, education uh, credentials uh, have actually seen their incomes decrease. It's terrible. So we have this small top elite that has a different morality, that they talk to each other and influence each other and are amoral for the rest of us, isn't it? Well, I, I think, let, let, let me try to be fair to them. Many of them actually believe that what they're doing would actually help everybody. But they were mm. so out of touch with what was going on mm. that uh, they, they didn't see that uh, mm. what they were doing was not, uh, was leading people in really in misery. You know, I want you to tell us some more about this because I, I started seeing, and it's now common thinking, that if you're not doing well, 
it's because you're not working hard enough. Well, first I'd say, uh, when I look at some of the people at the bottom and look how hard they work, uh, and I compare that to uh, how many days Donald Trump spends on the golf course, uh, <laughs> There's no comparison. Uh, the people at the bottom, many of them are working extraordinarily hard, uh, often in back-breaking work. Uh, uh, so it's not uh, a result of uh, lack of effort. Uh, many of those people uh, that have not been doing very well have looked for jobs, have looked and looked, they searched. And uh, there just aren't any jobs. So that in many countries around the world, uh, there is what we call, economists call it, involuntary unemployment. People would like to work. They just can't get a, a, a decent job. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book, The Price of Inequality. Uh, I titled it The Price of Inequality precisely because I wanted to emphasize that we are paying an enormous price for the... Uh, high levels of inequality that we have in the United States and in many other uh, countries. And I try to delineate in that book the various mechanisms that led uh, to that uh, poor economic performance. And some of them are obvious, some of them are a little bit more complicated. Let me give you an example of some of the more obvious ones. Uh, countries with high levels of inequality, like the United States, one aspect of it is that there is uh, systematically less equality of opportunity. That is to say, the life prospects of a young American are more dependent on the income and education of his parents than uh, most other countries, advanced countries around the world. But what does that mean? That means a young uh, American born of poor parents or even middle-income parents uh, won't be able to get the education uh, to live up uh, to his potential. Uh, he may not even be able to get the health care that he needs to prevent some disease that will impair his productivity during the rest of his life. Uh, so uh, that, that is one channel by which inequality really hampers uh, economic prosperity. And other channels relate to the particular ways that inequality is created. In the United States, one of the sources of inequality is uh, the high level of market power, now corporate power. And uh, the consequence of the abuse of market power is to lead to less investment, less aggregate demand, uh, lower incomes. Uh, it shifts the distribution of income uh, from ordinary citizens to the owners uh, of these corporate giants. Then there are, is a political dimension. High levels of, of economic inequality in a democracy, or even a quasi-democracy, uh, it gets translated into high levels of political inequality. And uh, those with economic power use their political power uh, to make sure that taxes are low, and that, in turn, results in underinvestment in the public, in technology, and in infrastructure, and in education, all of which leads to lower overall growth for the economy. So yeah. there are a large number of reasons 
that higher inequality is systematically re related to poor economic performance. You know, the first time I heard your name was when you were working at the World Bank many years ago and you resigned in protest that the way the IMF and uh, was pushing East Asian countries to adopt uh, neoliberal policies that you found dangerous. Tell me a bit about how, why inequality is bad for our quality. Whenever you have a high levels of economic inequality, it results in political inequality in almost any economic system. And uh, those at the top will use the political system not to advance the interests of the country as a whole, but to advance their own interests. Uh, sometimes that's called capture. Uh, and uh, the result of uh, that is that you wind up with a more divided society, more divided uh, politics. There's another dimension I, I, I should mention, which is more subtle, which is uh, sometimes called cognitive capture. Uh, when you have an elite that has been very successful uh, and has a lot of political power, uh, they talk to each other, they develop a set of beliefs, uh, even when they are not uh, pursuing their private interest, uh, they don't have what I would call a balanced view of society, uh, the economy, or uh, politics. Perhaps your last thought for our podcast on... Um what is the big challenge that we should focus on today? There's so many battles. They're all connected. Where would you put your finger? You're, you're absolutely right. We're, we're facing a number of very interrelated uh, battles. Uh, 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 poverty and inequality, climate change, corruption. Uh, to me... Uh, the only way we are going to be successful in winning these battles is through the political process. And that's where why I, I think our energies should be focused on restoring our democracies. And that's where uh, civil society is absolutely essential to mobilize uh, our our, our, our citizens, and in particular young people, make sure they get out to vote, uh, make sure that they uh, uh, may uh, express their views, their strong views on these very important uh, issues that will affect them for the rest of their lives. For me as an activist, I wanted to ask you one more question, which is how do you see this fight that we are in against inequality? Are you optimistic? Are you hopeful? Well, the power of money uh, is, is obvious. Uh, the power of the voices of ordinary individuals uh, is overwhelmed normally by money. And it's only by people acting together that we can counteract the power of money, the power of corporations. And that's why, what civil society is about. It's about collective action of ordinary individuals coming together 
uh, a single voice is hard to be heard, but when people come together, whether it's to fight poverty or to fight for the environment, it is the only chance we have of overcoming the corporate interest and the interest of money. I have uh, actually uh, some optimism right now, uh, and it's because of young people. Um, you know, I teach at Columbia University, so I, I get a chance to see uh, over the years uh, how uh, sentiments have changed uh, among the young people. Uh, and in the last few years, there's been a major change. The young people have seen how bad things can get if they don't get engaged, that they become more engaged politically. Uh, they become more engaged uh, in civil society and activist groups. Um, and uh, they have begun to grasp uh, the issues of inequality, uh, poverty, uh, the environment, and the broad range of what I call progressive issues. So, you know, uh, year by year, the fraction of people who understand the failures of neoliberalism and understand that there has to be an alternative. There is an alternative, what I've called progressivism. Uh, uh, their, their numbers will increase. I just hope they increase fast enough uh, that the damage being done by uh, some of the uh, extremists on the right will not uh, be permanent. I agree with you. I see that they get it even better than my generation. The fact that they are organizing, speaking about inequality, extreme inequality, and connecting it to environmental destruction, climate change, and to politics that are captured and that, I mean, they are intersectional. They are pulling all this together. They know so well that it's the same elite group of powerful people in the running the economy and running our governments who are roasting the planet and hurting the lives of ordinary people. They, they see it as one struggle. That makes me hopeful too. Power to you, Joseph Pinkley. I think it was your Justice Louis Brandy your Supreme Court, who once said that you can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few people, and you can have democracy, but you can't have both. I couldn't agree with you more that it's about claiming our power back and organizing to claim it back. I want to thank you so much, not, for, not just for this podcast, Joe, but for working with us, with me and with Oxfam, and um, letting us draw from your wealth of knowledge and you lending your influence, your, your work to this course. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, and keep up your good work. To. What, what do you take from that interview? Well, many things. I mean, what an amazing man. But I think one of the things that really caught my imagination is the way that uh, money 
is used or extreme wealth is used to capture politics so that society is no longer run for the benefit of the majority but it's instead run in the interests of a wealthy minority i thought he was very powerful in talking about that i think you're right max and i think i think we really need to unpack this that extreme wealth isn't just buying priceless works of arts and super yachts and underground swimming pools and whatever else the super rich like to buy but we're also seeing that it's buying politics it's buying appliant media it's buying the judiciary and and that that is that is really frightening from the perspective of an equal and fair society yeah i think that's the key point he's making that you know money money turns itself into politics turns itself into power and that that's that's dangerous and shapes the economy in dangerous ways. I mean, look at the way money is used to control the media all over the world. Printing lies, I mean, putting out uh, untruths that are distracting whole populations, leading to a rise in racism, a rise in, in fascist views, really scary stuff. And a lot of that has big money behind it, and a lot of it has its origins in, in inequality, I think. Yeah, and it's all the while it's distracting people from billionaires own bad behavior really at the heart exactly exactly it's kind of look over their politics (laughs) max the other thing i really took from the interview with professor ziglitz he talks about political capture but he also really profoundly talk about this idea of cognitive capture and this capture of ideas we've really seen how the the ideology of neoliberalism over the last 40 years or so it's really presented itself as the only game in town as the new mainstream definitely it's there's a, a famous guy called frank luntz who who writes about uh, shaping imagination shaping ideas with words and he said famously that if you can be defined as common sense then you've basically won and i think for 40 years we've had this uh, economic doctrine that's masqueraded as common sense and what stiglitz is very strong on is he points out there is no economic evidence that neoliberalism that uh, you know liberating markets deregulating privatizing that these things work Uh, they don't trickle down economics as he said doesn't work but the problem is it's still going and Max, I mean, I can't think of the number of politicians and economists and so many others that that, that we've you know come across can't really think beyond this intellectual straitjacket of of neoliberalism. But why do you think that such a discredited economic kind of mainstream still stands so strongly? I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a zombie doctrine. Uh, it's been discredited by the financial crisis. It's been discredited by many economists like Stiglitz. But it's like a zombie, it's very hard to kill. It's still stumbling <laughs> onwards. And, you know, politicians, elites still look to the pieces of neoliberalism, like lowering, lowering taxes, for instance, funding tax havens. It's still going on. And what I think what's needed is, is a strong alternative, a strong alternative story. That's, that's the thing that will kill neoliberalism in the end. Max, look, I'm a seeker of hope, and I really see over the last few years, and I think people like Joe Stiglitz have played a big part in this, we're really seeing the emergence of a new set of economic ideas, and even ideals, I'd say. You look at the global Green New Deal, you look at the universal basic income, you look at how New Zealand, for example, now is looking at their economy beyond the narrow prism of GDP, but looking at well-being. You look at new forms of business, the elimination of the gender pay gap, and trying to 
feel that there's something, there's a really emergence of a new story for the economy there. I think the pieces are there of something new, and I, I thought uh, Stiglitz's answer on hope was really inspiring because I think young people in particular certainly don't buy uh, the old story. They don't buy the neoliberal story. And they, they do have enormous enthusiasm for these, these new ways of doing things. I think it needs to be pulled together more in, in one cohesive story. Um, but I, I do find inspiration in that. I agree with you. Max, thank you. That nicely brings us to a close for today's episode. Now, I'm super chuffed to say that earlier today we were able to meet with a government leader, the leader of a nation that's been actively fighting inequality, bringing down economic inequality every single year since 1993. He's one of our guests we have lined up. Our next episode is out in a couple of weeks. We hope you join us there for the next episode of Equals. Thank you. Thank you.